Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, September 6th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about, well, some pretty awesome set visit stuff, and uh, I'm going to be playing my interview with IT Chapter 2 director Andy Muschietti. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And my name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. So, Jacob, let's get right into it, man. You were on the set of Dr. Sleep, which is Mike Flanagan's sequel to Stephen King's The Shining, but kind of also Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Let's get into this thing. What What is this movie? Okay, this is based on the 2013 novel Dr. Sleep by Stephen King, so it's not some cheap cash-in <laughs> sequel to The Shining. It is written by Stephen King, at least the novel was. But as many Stephen King fans know and will tell you, the original novel of The Shining, published in 1977, is very different from Kubrick's movie, which was made in 1980. And the differences are both thematic in that uh, Kubrick's film is very hopeless and very dark and nihilistic, whereas King's novel is actually fairly hopeful. And uh, Jack Torrance redeems himself before he dies, as opposed to freezing to death, hunting down his son. And but a big, big diversion uh, is that Ubik Hotel is still standing at the end of Kubrick's uh, film. The haunted hotel is still around to haunt more. Whereas at the end of the book, it burns down thanks to Jack Torrance deciding, you know, enough is enough and fighting against the forces that are, you know, trying to destroy him. So you have two very conflicting endings, two very different um, thematic points of view, and you have two of the greatest horror stories of all time, both The Shining and The Shining. <laughs> so when we first walked onto the set of Doctor Sleep, one of the first questions anybody asked, you know, Mike Flanagan, the director, you, you know him from The Haunting of Hill House and Netflix, uh, Hush, Gerald's Game really, really strong director. He, in my money, he's one of the best in the horror genre right now. We asked him, you know, is this a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's Shining or is it a sequel to Stephen King's The Shining? And uh, Flanagan was pretty upfront about it. He, this is a sequel to both. This is a sequel that adapts the, the actual text of Dr. Slate, for the most part, uh, follows a grown-up Dan Torrance, now played by Ewan McGregor, who survived the events of the Overlook Hotel and has spent the past 40 years drinking himself into a stupor uh, and following his father's alcoholic path because, you know, he he has the shine. He, he, he And his drinking helps him keep it under control so he can't see visions of horrible things happening all around him. <laughs> and the novel slowly, you know, follows him as he 
adjusts to life and and cleans up and dries out and uses his powers for good. But naturally, you know, all kinds of supernatural shenanigans start happening, and he has to rescue another girl uh, who has the ability to shine from a group of, of people who uh, turn themselves immortal by draining the life energy of people who can shine. So it's a really strange um, story between Danny helping another kid survive a supernatural threat of her own who also has his abilities. So that is Dr. Sleep in a nutshell. So the question is, okay, Ben, what is Dr. Sleep? <laughs> Dr. Sleep at this point is going to be a sequel to both the novel and Kubrick's film because Mike Flanagan literally said that there's no way they were going to make a shining sequel on the big screen and not return to the Overlook Hotel. So even though Stephen King has famously not liked Kubrick's film and has famously and publicly talked about how much it got wrong and how it goes against what he was intending in his book, uh, Flanagan uh, worked up the nerve to write a screenplay, uh, email Stephen King and say, do I have your blessing to incorporate the imagery and tone of the Kubrick film, to which King obliged and said yes. So... In, if you've only ever seen The Shining, the movie, this will function as a sequel to that. If you've ever, only ever read the book, this will, be, this will also function as that somehow, even though The Overlook Hotel is, is, is still around, which we'll get to in a second. So that's all just the nitty-gritty of of adapting something that has so much cultural baggage. You know, this is The Shining we're talking about. Yeah. So I want to know, Jacob, uh, a lot of times on set visits, the studio will design it in such a way where the visiting journalists to the sets will be able to see something kind of cool happening, like theoretically. Uh, it's often very, very controlled, like you talked about during the Creep Show uh, set visit recently on the podcast. But um, sometimes, you know, they, they make an effort to let you see something cool. Like when I was on the set for, um, I think it was Ant-Man and the Wasp, I got to see like the quantum uh, tunnel that was built, and that was pretty cool. And then like uh, I was on the set for the Carrie remake, and you got to see the part where the blood came down on Chloe Grace Moretz or whatever. So like they, they take you to these sets at specific times, and and, you know, when certain things are still constructed to show you some cool things that they've built. But your experience sounds way beyond just, like, seeing something cool. You actually got to walk around in the recreation of the Overhill Hotel, right? Yes, this was insane. Uh, we first started off watching them film another scene, uh, a scene with Abra, the, the, girl who, the little girl who can shine. And it was, it's a pretty low-key scene of her being put to bed and talking to her parents. And then uh, Mike Flanagan would come by between takes and chat with us. And we knew something was up because we were sitting. We slowly realized that the interviews were taking place in room 237, uh, the, the haunted room from the original movie. And, you know, not Stephen King's uh, haunted room because the room is a different number in the book. Uh, but this is the room 237 with the green walls and the bathtub and all the ickiness. And so that was we already knew something was up. So, so first it, of all, just doing all of your like roundtable style interviews in that room would be cool enough, uh, you know, on its yes. own, right? Like, because it's a, it's a pretty um, spot on recreation of that iconic room from from the original The Shining. Yeah, it, there were even like uh, tables full of uh, screen caps from the original movie and images, and, like designs. They they clearly laid it all out for us to see it, but they they took all, every detail they could. And then when there was an extended break, uh, Mike Flanagan very giddily, like smiling the whole time, wanted to show us something. So he led the group out of the soundstage and across the way to another soundstage. He's like looking back at us, laughing the entire time. And he made it very clear that he wanted to watch us see it for the first time. So he opens the door to another soundstage, and there is the Colorado Lounge from the Overlook Hotel. If you remember, this is, this is the big set from The Shining, the one where Jack Torrance is typing, uh, and the one where Wendy confronts him with a baseball bat, the one where, uh, you see, where Danny drives by on his uh, big wheel, and the camera tracks him while his long tracking shots. And 
this isn't just a recreation. They went to the Warner Bros. archives, dug up Kubrick's old blueprints for the original set, and had it built to the nail uh, to how it was built in 1980 for the original film. And it's one massive set. Like, it's the Colorado Lounge itself, followed by the stairs to go up to a second level. And the level wraps around the entire set with various hotel room doors and balconies. And at one point, we even went out one fake door. We opened it, it like a hotel room door, but you open it, and suddenly you're, you're looking out at the other back half of the soundstage where the front of the Overlook had been built with the big snowy front <laughs> and all the big windows and, and everything. So they built it all. And this we went on a, like a half-hour tour with Mike Flanagan as he walked us through the Overlook Hotel from room to room, up the stairs, you know, putting out props, talking about how they went through the movie and took thousands of uh, screenshots of all the frames because they were trying to find, oh, what is that book on the shelf? What is this a picture of on the wall? And they couldn't find the exact thing. They recreated it. Uh, the carpet, the, the tacky furniture, the color scheme, it's all there. And interestingly, it looks a little worse for wear in some areas. Same with room 237, as if it's been abandoned for a long time. So they wouldn't comment entirely about how the Overlook fits into the movie. Uh, they did tell us uh, that the climax of the film, the third act, is set at the Overlook now, which is very different from the book because the book you know, doesn't have the Overlook. Hmm. So, so whatever final showdown happens uh, is going to be here instead. So since another set we saw was the Torrance's room with the red rum written on the door and the door still broken open from the axe in the original movie. Wow. Uh, we're either seeing a hotel that was closed up and abandoned right after all these murders happened and nobody reopened it, or we're seeing, you know, a nightmare version of it where, um, uh, where like the worst of it, the worst time in Danny's life is being brought back to torment him in some kind of psychic vision. Yeah, what do you think? It is. What do you think? What do you think is more likely? Like, do, do you think you're gonna get you know something like flashbacks? Because it sounds like you're saying that you know some parts are uh, look you know well kept and then other parts are are uh, dilapidated or whatever. Like, do you think there's maybe a mixture of both? Like, how how do you think that they're gonna handle that? My guess is a mixture of both. I wouldn't be surprised if you know. Uh, the, the entire hotel is dilapidated in one moment, and then like cleans and you know spry the next time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm very excited to see what they do because there are some sets like um, the hallway where Danny first sees the ghost twins in the original movie. Like that one was like literally falling apart. Like there was like mold in the walls, and the carpets were torn up, and the wallpaper was peeling. Whereas the uh, Colorado Lounge looked old, but not necessarily like even it was falling into total disrepair. So I'm very curious to see how they utilize these sets and. As Flanagan told us in the interview, which you can read on the site, uh, the idea of making a Shining sequel and not going back here was like unfathomable to him, and he would not have made the movie uh, if King had not gave his blessing to incorporate the Kubrick stuff. So it is, it is by far the coolest film set I've ever been on. So last year, uh, movie fans had a chance to revisit the Overlook in Steven uh, Spielberg's Ready Player One, but that was like a digital recreation. And this is a literal, like like you were saying, like nail by nail, plank by plank, like every tiny book in the background sort of recreation for somebody like you who's been, you know, a movie fan for your entire life and, and loves horror and loves Stephen King and loves The Shining. Like this must have been like a life changing experience for you. Yeah, I suppose well, things are sound really cheesy, but like I was there with other people, like I was there with um, Nerdist Lindsay Romain. Uh, who used to write for Slash Film, and we're looking at sort of like a joggy of like, are we actually here? Are we actually seeing this? And like, we, it's almost, been almost a year since this visit, uh, and I still can't believe it. I, I, one thing I write about in this article is that they were a couple days away from striking the set when we were there, which means they're going to disassemble the set. And they'd never said they were going to d- destroy it or tear it down. And it was even suggested to us that it, it may be saved. 
uh, for some purpose. And knowing that Warner Brothers has their horror horror made here event now, their annual celebration of horror films, where you have you know scare actors and haunted mazes. Oh, that's on the they, that's on on the Warner Brothers Studio backlot, right? Yeah, yeah. And if they get some space, rebuild the Shining um, uh, uh, set with these pieces there, and it's charged admission to come walk around it at Halloween. I, this is going to be a thing people make travel from all around the world to see, and it will be worth it. Oh, man, that would be awesome. So, um, wow, that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just like the, the, I can picture, like, your face as you turn the corner and see the hole in the bathroom door that Nicholson put his face through. Like, that must have been just wild. Um, yeah, and it, it is wild. And my, my concern is that when I'm saying all this, it sounds like the movie's going to be a big nostalgia fest. Like, you know, hey, remember the Overlook? Here it is. But... Uh, Flanagan is such a talented filmmaker, and he's so in line with Stephen King's sensibilities. I mean, Kubrick and King don't see the world in the same way. Kubrick didn't have facing humanity, whereas Stephen King actually does. And Flanagan's horror is like King's in that way, in that in the end, you know, good people win most of the time in Stephen King's stories, and humanity moves on, and people help each other. And The Shining, as a book, came to that conclusion too, but Kubrick's movie comes to the opposite conclusion. So I feel like by being a sequel to Kubrick's movie, uh, Flanagan is in a position to restore King's message of if if The Shining is about a family being torn apart and people being torn down, Dr. Sleep is a book and possibly a movie about people being built back up and uh, coming together and like learning from their strengths. And I feel like as a sequel and a reaction to the original movie, it could actually serve Stephen King in a way that maybe no Stephen King movie ever has before. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so before we get to uh, another Stephen King property, I, I want to give you an opportunity, Jacob. Is there any one piece of information that you learned on this set visit that you haven't mentioned it yet that you think people um, would be interested to know about this movie? This is a minor thing. It's something I really appreciated, which was uh, somebody asked Ewan McGregor, who's playing you know grown-up Dan Torrance, if he looked at the child actor from the original movie uh, to learn the, like mannerisms or like the way he acts, mm-hmm. and which Ewan McGregor said no because. You know, when, when, you, when you're a five-year-old kid, you don't actually grow up to be a five-year-old kid. You grow up to be more like your parents. So he's so he's not doing a Jack Nicholson impression, but he watched Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance closely so he could play that character's son as opposed to playing that kid. I thought that was a really, really cool hmm. acting observation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and McGregor is like one of those guys that I feel like has been largely underutilized or, or maybe underappreciated it's like how uh i feel like ethan hawk has gotten like a you know he's start he's finally started to get his due over the past few years as a performer like somebody who's been in a lot of stuff and has been mostly really good in a lot of things even if the you know all of the movies that he's been in haven't been great i feel like ewan mcgregor is sort of in that same camp like he you know it's very rare to see him give a bad performance so i'm excited to see what he does on uh on such a huge stage with you know so much um uh, pressure and like expectation of of something like Doctor Sleep on his shoulders. So um, yeah, between this and um, it chapter two and James McAvoy, it's the, the age of a hot Scotsman playing Stephen King protagonist. <laughs> well, that's a good transition into my conversation with Andy Muschietti, who directed it chapter two. He directed uh, it chapter one as well. And uh, yeah, in this interview, I, I talked to him about. Um, how he distinguished between moments of this movie that needed to be adapted directly and the aspects where he felt like he could put a little bit more of his personal stamp on this film. Hey listeners, this is Ben. I just wanted to jump in really quickly to say that this interview does contain spoilers, so if you have not seen It Chapter 2 yet, 
I would recommend just waiting until you get a chance to check that out. The movie's in theaters right now, and then come back and listen to this interview. But uh, yeah, it's a good chat. It's about 15 minutes. So here is my discussion with director Andy Muschietti. Hey, Ben. Hey, Andy. How's it going? I'm very good. How are you? I'm great. Congratulations on the movie. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I really did. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the book, and I know that you're a, a big fan of the book as well. So uh, my first question actually is, how do you distinguish between moments of this movie that need to be adapted directly and areas where you sort of have the freedom to put your own touches on it? Well, it's about, like, you know, I sort of identifying what makes a good film experience or not, you know, because it's, it's, it's basically adapting to a different language. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took the pieces of the story that actually can be translated and the other the, and, and there's a space you know for new events that actually basically turn the screws of tension a little more and make all the events more consequential mm-hmm. uh, so there was a you know there was a, a big space for, for creating those those, those events um, um yeah, you know, it's, it's like the, when you read the book, it's like you know all the, the all that section happens in a longer time. Right. So it's it's interrupted. It's not necessarily consequential, even though that there's a clear goal. Uh, but it's also interrupted by you know flashbacks uh, that that last for chapters, uh, interludes of Mike. So when you, you know, when you translate it to a film experience, you, you have to basically make everything consequential, make those, you know, adjustments so it's an escalation and, uh, and, and crank up the tension. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that, that's the criteria, basically, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and the creature designs specifically sort of seem to be an area where you can crank up some of that tension and inject some of your own, like, personal twisted imagery to it. So, yeah, yeah. like, for those aspects, are you trying to capture or, or create imagery that disturbs you personally? Or how do you go about that part of it? You couldn't say it better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it all comes from the inside, you know? It's like, uh, I can't, I, I have to, like, design like, creatures that that would scare me if I saw if I saw them for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, the the I, bug with the baby's head in the Jade of the yeah. Orient sequence is going to mess up some kids who see this movie <laughs> a, a few years earlier than they should. You know. <laughs> I know, I know, and the, yeah, the baby the baby, the baby bug is uh, it's not it's not something that you see in the book. It's like a weird hybrid of of imagination that that is is pretty cool and disturbing. You know, because it's a it's a horrible blend yeah you know yeah it taps a little bit to the fact that nobody had babies so it's something that uh, that uh, it's, it's wedged in there it's like a it's a, it's a, it's a theme you know they, nobody of them had babies why because they had to stay children to access the power of belief mm-hmm. so i i sort of tossed the the baby face on a on the bug and it's like so disturbing it doesn't really need an explanation because what pennywise is trying to do there is to generate chaos and and fear yeah so i get i get the eyeball that i really liked from the book but then uh there's a there's a bad wing that doesn't need <laughs> further explanation because it's, <laughs> it's fucking creepy and then the floating heads of the kids on the that are s- still singing mm-hmm. you know the chinese restaurant tune uh it's chaos more than anything <laughs> yeah for sure um yeah. 
tell, tell me about the scene with Bill having his vision, like seeing the origins of it. That stuff is pretty wild in the novel. So how did, how did you go about creating that scene visually? Well, I really, I was, you know, one of the events in the original book is the, is the, is the, is the psycho trip. You know, it's a psychoactive trip that the kids have when they do the smokehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't really a, a place in the first movie to put it. Uh, you know, starting with the fact that, you know, the first movie was, we had a bunch of limitations and, you know, wanted to, to make a contained movie and, and that didn't, so I wanted to put the smokehouse in the first one, I, I couldn't do it, but because it's uh, it's an event that I, that I really like and I think people uh, really remember mm-hmm. that thing where this, where, where the, you know, the, where you know, there's actually a vision of, uh, of it coming to Earth for the first time millions of years ago in the shape of like a, sort of like a, an asteroid, you know, mm-hmm. crashing Earth. So we managed to, to you know, to find a place for that. And, uh, you know, the whole ritual of Chud was, the function of it was giving Mike something to, to lie about. <laughs> because Mike ultimately wants to use the only weapon that the Losers Club have, which is the power of belief. This, this, these characters are not children anymore, so they don't have that. Right. You know, they don't have the imagination or the innocence to believe in things that don't exist. So he lies to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he invokes basically this thing that is a mythological, that that apparently worked before in the past, uh, but it's bullshit. It's something that actually never worked. But it doesn't matter. Because if you believe, it will work. And the piece of, you know, the information that Mike has from the first movies, I don't know, many people don't remember this, but when uh, when they're confronting Pennywise and Bill is holding uh, this stun bolt gun that is unloaded, and all the kids think that, that there's, a, there's a load there, and the only one who knows it doesn't is, uh, is Mike. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's unloaded, it's unloaded. And all the kids are like, kill it, kill it, kill it. And when Bill fires, you know, they draw a hole, a big hole in the, in, on, on Pennywise's face. And that was an indication for, for Mike that uh, the power of unified belief is a weapon. And he, you know, after years and years of doing research, he, he comes to a dead end where he notices that there's nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> that can kill Pennywise except for element which is belief yeah i mean pennywise uses that as a weapon because he makes kids believe you know yeah yeah and uh, but the truth is it's something it's a weapon that can be turned against him mm-hmm. the adrian mellon sequence is one of the most vicious things in the entire movie and while a lot of the film's violence is really heightened the yeah. violence inflicted on him is really sadly something that still happens very regularly in real life and i've heard you say that that's why it was important to include but i was just wondering if you were ever concerned with the idea of like portraying that realistic type of violence no i think it, it had to be realistic to to show you know the, the brutality of it is, is something that comes from from human perversion from human cruelty mm-hmm. uh and i didn't want to uh, to hold back on that yeah uh, even like Stephen King, when he included this in his story, is because it happened uh, in his town. Right. It was like the murder of, of Charlie Howard in 1984. Uh, he was already like 
making a story about uh, the cruelty of, of humans in a small American town. Um, and, and it was very important for him. Now it was very important for me also. Uh, and it, I think it's relevant to a time where these things are, are still are still happening. Yeah, know? yeah. And w one of the things that was so present throughout the novel and the first movie is how the town of Derry has the sickness, almost like an infection because of its presence. But aside yeah. from the Adrian sequence, that element of the story doesn't really come into play very much in chapter two. So were there additional <laughs> scenes that you shot that sort of continued that thread for this movie? Of, of adults being like evil. Yeah, and like the town itself. Yeah, yeah you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, there was, you know, it's established on the first one. I had, you know, I had a, four, a movie that was four hours, my first cut. So I had to basically lift some things that, that were secondary yeah. to the main plot. Uh, I think people that have the first movie fresh, they already have a, a, a feeling of how adults are. In fact, in the second movie, you can still feel, you know, you, you, you go back to a, uh, a flashback with Beverly where we see his, his dad and his, you know, his twisted way in which he abuses her. Right. Uh, we learn a little more about it. You know, we're, we know where that comes from. Yeah, By I am. Um... perfume on her. It's like sort of trying to recreate his dead, you know, wife. Yeah. Blah, blah, whatever. And you mentioned uh, that your first cut was four hours, and I was just wondering if that was, like, an assembly cut, or was that something that actually you would have been, like, happy with audiences watching? No, no, not at all. It was a, that was an editorial cut, which is the, the, the thing that you see uh, when when you finish shooting, basically. Mm -hmm. So as you're shooting, your, your editor is sort of assembling the movie with all the things that are that you shot, basically. All the scenes unaltered basically and that was four hours uh after that i started my director's cut which was a three hour 25 the stider you know on the scenes the way i wanted them uh yeah and but then of course 325 even though we did a test screening with that version that that threw a surprisingly high score which is 82 um uh, it's definitely a, tr a tribute to, the, you know, the audience's love for the first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there were chances to, you know, there was opportunities there to make make it trim, to trim it into into refine it, you know, mm -hmm. to a, a better film experience for the audience. Yeah, and I, I know. Yeah, I, no, no, I really like the movie a lot. I think um, you know, there have been a lot of stories about a potential supercut, and I, I don't want to get into that too much with you because you're probably sick of talking about it. But uh, and I know that hasn't even been confirmed yet. But could you tell me, you know, if something like that were to happen, about some of the new material that you would want to include if that ends up coming to pass? Yeah, well, there's I can't talk about this because I want I want to keep it under wraps a little bit, um, but. One of them is something from the book, and the other one is uh, a thing that is uh, uh, new. Okay. And it is related to it is related to a resolution to uh, the perpetrators of of Adrian Mellon's uh, beating. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Okay. Cool. Um, if, <laughs> Bringing if, some justice, you know. To yeah. The, yeah. The definitely. If you had your way, would that version, that supercut version, be something that people would watch in a theater, or would that be designed specifically for like a home video release? It feels 
more like a home video release, mm -hmm. something that you know, because people, you know, they 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 won't sit in a in a in a in a cinema for more than three hours. Mm -hmm. But but they would binge. On the other hand, they would binge like series in their their home for like hours. Right. <laughs> and uh, I really don't know what format it will have on home video, whether it's like divided in like six, six episodes or or what. Yeah. Uh, it's the same. At the, you know, at the end, it's the same because people that want to keep going, they will they will keep going. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely uh, um without shooting another movie is like a, uh, uh, you know, sort of a definitive uh, <laughs> global vision of the whole story. Yeah. And that's why I want to, you know, to include a couple of scenes that are not shot. Sort yeah. of like what, uh, what Spielberg did on, uh, well, not that it was two parts, but, you know, the special edition of Close Encounters, you know, they, they released it and then he shot more and they re-released it and, you know, people bored to the cinema to see what, what, those, you know, extra footage was. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you about It Chapter 2 specifically. W was there um, an element, or, or what is the element that you are the most proud of when you look back on the making of that movie? Um, I, th I think, uh, you know, as, uh, apart from, you know, the, the, the new spectacle that, that Chapter 2 brings compared to the first one, which is sculpture and and a bigger scale and a very bigger canvas i'm uh, i'm proud of the of the emotional journey uh i'm proud of, of the emotional uh, conclusion to this story and it's the, it's, the, it's the thing probably because it's the thing that still gets me when i see the movie after watching it like 200 times mm -hmm. i still see it and the, and the thing that gets me is like you know seems like um like Richie holding holding Eddie mm -hmm. in the cavern, uh, the guys in the uh, in the quarry in the water at the end, uh, holding each other as a group. These you know these bits still get me, and uh, and, it, and I think they work because it was it it it, it, it was well built throughout the the two movies. I think there was a, a, um, an emotional engagement that was achieved, and. <laughs> Yeah, and just the you know, I see it in people. I see I see people like coming out of the theater with like teary eyes and stuff, and that's the, the greatest uh, reward, you know. Yeah, um, I think I probably have time for one more quick question, and that is, uh, yeah. there there was a report earlier this summer that you were in talks to direct the Flash, and I don't even want to get into the specifics of that with you, but I just want to ask, hypothetically speaking, what would you like to see in a Flash movie? too much maybe <laughs> i can't i can't i can't talk about it yet because we're we're still like in, in you know beginning phase of that but yeah. it's very exciting okay. that i can talk cool cool yeah. all right well thanks very much for your time andy i appreciate it and again uh, congratulations again thank you so much Wow, what a great interview. We definitely listened to that in real time. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for uh, yeah, laying out exactly how we do it here on Slash Home Daily. But I think that's going to bring us to the end of uh, today's episode and to the end of this week's episodes of Slash Home Daily. Um, Jacob, where can people find more of your work online? 
uh, slashfilm.com every single day on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. And you can find me at slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes. I would highly recommend reading a lot of Jacob's Dr. Sleep stuff. It's it's really, really good. Uh, Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcasts apps and send your feedback questions comments and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes that helps us out a lot tell your friends about the show spread the word any way you can thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you on monday